Good morning. And I am in the book of John. Hallelujah. You know? And as you know, my last X number of communions, we have done segments of John. And uh, so I thought I'd pull it all together. How's that? I can't leave John. I have to stay with John. I'm addicted to John. <laughs> there are probably worse addictions, but here I am. And uh, let me pray first, though, because I need help. Heavenly Father, help me, Lord. Help me uh, say what you would have me say to your children that you love, Father. Praise you for all you've done. I praise you for how you nurtured your disciples in your time and how you nurture the disciples of our time and all time. Thank you, Lord. Lead me in Jesus' name. Amen. God is good, and uh, so what I planned on doing was sort of covering the, sec the, the whole uh, discourse in one's fell swoop. So how's that? So <laughs> No, it's impossible to do, but what I'm going to do is go over it uh, in one overview, if you will. Uh, because I've given you little pieces. So instead of giving you little pieces, I'll give you, instead of deep little pieces, maybe I'll give you one large shallow piece. How's that? But it'll be John uh, 13 through 17. So yeah, it's a lot of chapters and a lot of information. Uh, but I just wanted to give you the gist of what's going on, and maybe I already have, but bear with me in my repetition. And here we are. So we're at John chapter 13, and he says, and it says, Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So Jesus is now talking about his time to leave. And actually, John 13 and 14 is about Jesus talking about his time to leave. He's going. This is, you know, at Passover. This is Thursday night, probably. And there's a lot of discourse on whether it's Wednesday or Thursday, but I'm going to not bother with that. Basically, let's say it's Thursday night, and tomorrow is the day he goes to the cross. So this is it, you know. And, uh, and guess what? Jesus knew this all along. This is not a surprise to Jesus. Even before creation, Jesus knew this. We know Jesus did creation. I mean, Jesus was with the Father. Let's, take, let's go all the way back. It's always, I, I, probably my favorite verse is one we didn't talk about in communion yet, but just John 1.1. 1, 1. It's the classic. John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. We're talking Jesus. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This, this particular verse is what led me to begin my Bible reading life, if you will. I wanted to know Jesus. Jesus is the word. The equality is there. Uh, 
If you want to know Jesus, this is it. Spend time. Diligently seek the word, and he will be there. No, no question about that. I mean, that's the promise. So, so my journey has, and that was, I don't know, 15 years ago, perhaps. And back then, I used to work daily. If you can do that before retirement for me. Uh, and I had a habit of uh, every lunch hour reading the Bible in a year routine that I saw in, uh, that I found online in Bible Gateway. Uh, and you can simply go to Bible Gateway and look up uh, what you should read that day. So, so such that when you start January 1st, you read a piece of the Old Testament, a piece of the New Testament, and by the end of the year, you've read through all of it. Okay. So you just, you know, I had a computer on my desk. Some people do, some don't. And lunch hour, I just click, there it is, and I would read the Old Testament, New Testament, and I would work through the Bible in a year. And I think I did that for probably 15 years. Now, that doesn't mean I know any more than anybody. <laughs> Don't, I'm not saying that. But I'm, to me, it's important to be in the Word every day. And, uh, you know, the first couple times through, you're kind of learning uh, uh, what, sort of generally what's going on. You're learning the stories. But after a number, after every time through, it's like going through the level layers of an onion, let's say. Every time you go through, you're a little deeper, you start interrelating things. And believe me, after 15 years, it sounds like, gee, I don't know it all. Believe me, I don't. I'm still at layer 15, and there's an infinite number of layers going deep. So it's, I'm still very much on the level, on the top. But for me, it was uh, important to touch the word every day. Uh, you may not feel that way, but that was where I was. Uh, so this being in the Word, Jesus is the Word. If you want to get to know Jesus, be in the Word, and it's amazing how you'll get to know him better and better. So back to John 13. How does that relate? Again, it was important to know that Jesus didn't just appear on the scene at the beginning of Matthew 1 with, with Mary. You know, he was here in the beginning, beginning, before creation. Uh, verse 3 says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, yes, he did. He gave all things into his hands even before creation. And that he had come from God, he was going back to God. Okay, so it's very clear that Jesus was and is God from time, infinity, past. He created all that we have all that there is, all that there will be. And he had this temporary, we'll call it trip, <laughs> uh, where he, God, you know, you can't imagine the majesty and power of God to create the universe. And yet the universe fits into the palm of God's hand. I mean, these, these, these concepts are way beyond a little two-pound brain can handle. You know, we're, we're just, we're these little finite creatures that live for a while and we're gone. Kind of, you know, I saw some lightning bugs last night. You're kind of like, you know, we're around, we flash for a while, and then we're gone. So, we're God is eternal. So, there's a big difference between him and us in many ways. Yet, he chose to lower himself to become one of us. And he knew he would do that from the beginning. He knew he would come to take away the sin of the world. He knew this process of raising up disciples to begin discipleship, to spread the word throughout his 
his people, to draw those to his church that God sends. Uh, it's just, it's, it's such an amazing story. But now what's happening is tomorrow is the end with his disciples. So what, what would you do if tomorrow were the end? If you're the teacher, if you're the rabbi, and tomorrow is the end, what would you do the night before? Well, it reminds me of, uh, it's not exactly the same, but analogy. Final exam is tomorrow. Okay, time to review all the material I've taught you for the last three years. Uh, in my case, it might be, I better study all night because I didn't do a whole lot of studying during the semester. So I pull an all-nighter before the final exam. I remember doing that my freshman year a couple times. Decided that doesn't work too well. But this is, this is along the lines of, okay, I need to review all the major points with my, dis my disciples. And so it's a great place for us to go, because we're disciples, to see, to get a culmination of what he's trying to teach his disciples. Because we need to hear this too. We're disciples. So, so again, John 13 and 14 go through the time to leave routine, which reinforms them that, yes, he is leaving. Uh, it starts off saying, yeah, I know I have to leave, and I, but this is, was a temporary stay. I was here, I was in the beginning before creation. Uh, I know I'm going back to God. I came from God, I'm going back to God. Now, what does, this, what does Jesus do now that he's restated the fact that he is God? that he is all-powerful, all omnipresent, all those things that God is. What's he choose to do? He washes their feet. Now, talk about a contrast. So he's now declared, all right, I'm, I'm God. You know, I, I was God. I came to be human. I'm going back to God. Now let me wash your feet. And washing your feet isn't quite like uh, we think of it, you know, going to a foot massage or something. Uh, in those days, it was something only slaves would do. They never washed each other's feet. That wasn't a thing they did. That wasn't a normal practice. Uh, the disciples never washed the master's feet. It just wasn't done. It was something the slaves did. And again, different culture, and slavery was around then, you know. Uh, so it was really... Uh, a large step down, if you will. It was, it was actually shocking to them. But there is a passage in Philippians chapter 2, you go there, that talks about... Uh, here it is. Verse 7 in particular, if you want to look. But Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He emptied himself. He became a servant. That was our example of God here on earth. So one more time, with his disciples, he emptied himself and became, became the form of a servant, washed their feet, and then said, If I then, your Lord and teacher, having washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. So, yes, you are to 
reduce yourself to a slave to accomplish whatever is needed in the world. You can't let your pride or let this concept of uh, only the slave can do it. No. You become the slave. You become whatever is necessary to meet the needs of those around you. And that's different. That's sort of earth-shaking thinking. But he demonstrated that. That the lowly servant, servanthood is necessary whenever there is a need. That was lesson number one. And that lesson number one is really about forgiveness. Because how can we wash the feet of people that we have a problem with? And the problem comes from lack of forgiveness. So this is all the way down the line. This is really saying we have to forgive each other. Whatever uh, offense we imagine from someone, we have to ignore that. You know, We have to swallow that, if you will. We have to be a slave to Jesus. We have to, despite whatever problems we have with that person or that culture or whatever that mindset that's coming out of the world that says this person isn't okay. No, no, no. We have to meet their needs. Just as Jesus met the needs, he washed all 12 disciples' feet, including Judas. You know that. They were all still there when he washed their feet. And that's our example. And that's a really cool example. You know, I mean, that's God. He's able. He loves, you know, that he wants all to be saved. That was lesson number one, forgiveness. Lesson number two was betrayal. He's now teaching his disciples that he's going to be betrayed. They didn't know that. He certainly knew. He knew all about what Judas was up to. But he didn't want to let the whole cat out of the bag, or they probably would have throttled Judas at the table. So we can't have that happen, because the plan that Jesus had in mind is to complete the whole process for the glory of God, for his Father. But he does say to his disciples, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, John, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. And it's interesting. The, the table and the reclining business, I'm not sure how much you want to know about this, but uh, the, the table is like one foot off the floor. It's different than our table. You're not sitting at a table in chairs, despite that's how Leonardo da Vinci drew it in his painting. That's not quite how I understand it happens. It's really, in those times, you have a table about one foot off the floor, and you have mats and the people uh, lie on their left elbow, if you're right-handed, and your feet stick out away from this one-foot table. And so you're sitting like this, and here you have your, let's say, spoon, and food's on the table, and you feed yourself like that, and your feet are sticking out straight. That facilitates washing your feet, because Jesus you know, took off his robe and put on his towel and went around the outside and washed all 12 pairs of feet. Uh, so the feet are all out there. That helps that. Nevertheless, they're lying side by side. So there's not a person to your right and a person to your left, as in chairs. 
there's a person in front of you, in front of your chest, and a person behind. There's a front and back, not a left and right. Does that help? So, <laughs> and they say, let me try again. Uh, yeah, one of his disciples reclining at, uh, was reclining at Jesus' side. So that means uh, was, it was in front of him, okay? It was at his chest side, let's put it. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus who, was, who he was speaking, about whom he was speaking. So that disciple leaning back against Jesus. Okay, so Jesus is behind him. There's Jesus lying at the table. There's John. John has to lean back and ask. Lean back and ask Jesus. Lord, who is it? It is he whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. He says to John. And he says it, I think, quietly. He didn't yell it down the table. And he dipped it. And uh, behind Jesus, we imagine, was Judas. So we had Jesus, John, Judas in line at the table. So now he hands him the morsel, because he was able to hand him the morsel. So he had to be sort of close by. Hand him, meaning Judas. And then after he had taken the morsel, he, being Judas, took the morsel. Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said that to him. John had an inkling because John knew he was the one. Boom. He got up and left out and left. And it says, after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night, meaning he walked into the darkness. And so began the beginning of the betrayal, the process, the process of the crucifixion to come. The next lesson he taught about was the departure. So now he's, he's describing to the disciples what to do when I'm gone. And he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So again, he's focusing on love. And Jesus always focuses on love. Take it a step further. Um, Jesus is all about relationship. The kingdom is all about relationships. The world which is the opposite of the kingdom, which is where we are today, focuses on performance, just so you know. So uh, we are judged in the world by how we perform. We are judged in the kingdom by our relationships, in particular love. So it's a very different set of values. Uh, so we have to contend with that. So. Uh, so the commandment he gives is one of relationship. And most of his discussions are about relationships. And, that, and we have to be, we being in the world, have to be aware of the conflicts between performance and relationships. And I'll just leave that for a moment, hanging out there for you to think about. So on we go. Jesus foretells Peter's denial. Here, here's Peter, he's trying to solve the problem. How many of us try to solve the problem? The problem is, oh, Jesus is going away. I'll fix that. I'm not going to let him. Well, little did he know it was decreed before creation that this was going to happen, and Peter's not going to stop it. Nevertheless, Peter in, his, in himself says, I'm going to stop it. And uh, 
course, he can't. Jesus says no. Uh, and then Peter says to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you, he eventually says. And Jesus answers, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. We often say things in our flesh that we can't really do, don't we? Easier to say in, uh, on a table with dinner than later in the darkness. Three more instructions he has. One next one is about heaven. He talks about I am the way, the truth, and the life. And and you know, he's now asked, you know, I'll re review it a little bit. He said we ought to deal with forgiveness. Here comes betrayal. I'm now going to depart. And the next one is heaven. He's going to depart to heaven. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And don't worry about my leaving. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I, I am you may be also. So he's saying, okay, here I'm... I'm Leave, I'm being betrayed, I'm leaving you. That implies, the betrayal implies something horrible. Not sure what it is yet to them. But don't worry about it. I've got you covered. You'll be covered because in the end, I have a place for you. Now, I'm not sure about you, but if, if I were down there, I, I think I would still be troubled. And it's probably because of my lack of faith. I don't under, I can't see what's happening. I don't under, really understand what he's saying. But he's saying these things in such a way that really maybe become more understandable after the fact when they look back at it. Right now it's coming all this is coming too fast to be absorbed and to really understand it, I think for the disciples. And it shows in some of their responses. I mean, certainly when the guards showed up, they all ran, just like he said they would. So, and I would have run too, <laughs> just so you know. Uh, it's, it's a natural instinct. But nevertheless, he's, he's revealing what's going on in the spiritual. He promises that he will come back. The next lesson is about the Holy Spirit. He also promises the Holy Spirit. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. What a promise. And we, we maybe we take it for granted, because we've heard that for a while, but remember, this... This is coming new to them, I think. Or maybe it's maybe they've heard it on it. Maybe he's talked about it with them while they were walking along the road. But nevertheless, it's important that it be repeated here because it's important to know the spirit of truth is in you. It's necessary. He says next, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Okay, this is interesting. So we started out saying, okay, the Holy Spirit is in you. Okay. And then on top of that, he says, 
if you love me, me, Jesus, and my Father will make our home with you. It's getting crowded in there. The Trinity is with you all the time. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. This is really one of those critical passages that Scripture is actually based on, this particular verse, because this is to the disciples. He's talking to John. He's talking to Peter. He's talking to Matthew. He's talking to all these guys who will subsequently write the scriptures that become the word. And they really don't go home and then come back, maybe it was some 20 years later or whatever it is, and sit down with a pen and start writing. Now, what did he say? You know, it really, he, they were led by the inspired word of God. And here, Jesus promises that they will remember it accurately, everything that Jesus said that needed to be written down, let's say. So it's important to know that. And then the next lesson was concerning peace. Let not your hearts be troubled. Peace I leave you with, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The ruler of this world is coming. That's Satan. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. So this is the end of 1314, and this is the section that he describes his time to leave and those qualities and those attributes and those promises of God that were made. And it's a powerful section, and uh, it's worth meditating on if you want to meditate on something. <laughs> Next we have chapters 15 through 17 the tenor changes. It switches from, it's a time to leave, don't worry about it, I will save you, I will come back, I will get you, the Holy Spirit's in you. Those are all wonderful positive attributes that God promises and they are true and they are happening to each of you. And it's wonderful. Now comes chapter 16 where we go into what's called the hard times. There's a fallout from the world because the world is diametrically opposite of the kingdom. And the world does not like these things that we have been talking about to this point. The world is performance-based. The world wants stuff done. The world believes they have their own idea of creation. The world believes, you know, the strongest should rule and the weakest should follow. And everything is backwards. If you kind of wonder what, how the, what the kingdom's saying about something, look at the world, do a 180, and you've probably got the kingdom's answer to it. Right? You know, in the world, you have, oh, let's make the strongest, uh, most uh, best-performing person head of this group. Okay? Has the most performance, gets the best something, whether it's grades or most inventions or what? I don't know. Most saved lives if you're a dog. I don't know. I don't know what the parameters are. Everything, everyone has their own parameters, right? So who's head of the department? Well, it's the one who does the most and also makes the bosses the most comfortable. Maybe that he doesn't displace them. I don't know. Who knows? But the world is the world. 
I don't see anyone taking off his cloak, wrapping a towel around his waist, and washing the feet of his workers. Do you? No. No. So it's diametrically opposed. Everything's opposite. Everything's upside down. Because it's from the world is ruled, ruled by Satan, the prince of the world. So we have to be aware of that. So yet we have to get along. It doesn't mean we can't function in the world. We just have to be aware of the world's values. And there's nothing wrong with performing well in the world. Just don't use that. You know, and let's say you do perform well, which is good. You know, there's God's gifts to you, gives you qualities and gifts to do well. You do well. Now you're appointed head of something. Oh, okay. Now realize you were appointed head of something, not necessarily because of your relational skills, but because of your performance skills. Okay. Nevertheless, as a leader, you choose how you respond to that situation. And as a leader, how do you treat the people you lead? And you have a choice. You can be dogmatic, demanding, like the drill sergeant, and just give orders and expect them to be followed, and if they don't, you're out of here. It's sort of the world. Or you can be just the opposite. You can look to see what are the needs of the people working with you, with you, not under you, right? And how can you facilitate them and how can you help them? That's taking off your towel and washing their feet. And I mean helping them at any level. That's your choice. And you can find, and, and if you ever do that, the re, you get all kinds of reactions. Your bosses may think you're crazy and you'd be fired. That's happened once. Or you can, uh, but the positive side of that is the people, as they realize how you're helping them, make, develops what's called a team. You understand what that means? A team. That's uh, hard to describe what a team is. <laughs> hard to put words in it. You know, you see baseball teams and things. Not quite. It's really a team that uh, you're setting the example of how to operate by helping each other. And once you help people in the team, other people help people in the team. And pretty soon the team's about helping each other. That's what makes the word team, right? Everyone's helping each other to achieve whatever the goal is. Hopefully it's a reasonable goal. So I, I don't want to, I'm kind of going out of left field here, but nevertheless, it, it, it's what Jesus, I think, is trying to get across to the disciples. And I, he's been working on it for three years and he's repeating it here. And it only is facilitated by the fact that the Holy Spirit is in them, just like the Holy Spirit is in you. And the Holy Spirit in you allows you to be aware of what the Holy Spirit is asking you to do, even though it may seem wrong to the world. And then once you start doing this stuff that seems wrong to the world, out comes this thing called hard times, right? That's really the root of the persecution. Here's someone who's acting in a bizarre, from their point of view, a bizarre way. You know, why are you doing that to that person who's just ought to be fired or whatever? You know, why are you trying to do this? And, and, uh, and on it comes. So let me, I still have a little time left. Let me hit some of these hard time issues that Jesus raises up on his last supper. He has a number of 
more instructions. And really, these are a list of instructions I'm going through to the disciples. The first set was the list of instructions that talk about time to leave. The last set in chapter 15 and 16 talk about the hard times and how to deal with that. He starts off in chapter 15 talking about, I am the true vine. Okay, so that means we, I am the true vine, my father is the vine dresser, every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, every branch that does bear fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit. <clears throat> you are already clean, <clears throat> excuse me, or sanctified, because of the word I have spoken to you. He's talking directly to his disciples. Abide in me and I in you. That is, remain connected to me through these difficulties. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Simply says you can't do it on your own. You need to be connected to Jesus to deal with the hardships to come. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. As this, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So he actually takes it to a different level. Not only is he telling us how to deal with the hard times, the tribulations, but there's actually joy in that. There's joy in the fact that you can raise people up, you can help people accomplish their tasks, and they respond. Thank you, Lord. And then he goes into what's called the world and the hatred of the world. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I choose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So understand the tribulation, and we started here, we talked about tribulation even during communion, which is great. It's amazing how God links different sections of the service together. But tribulation is an outfalling of following the Lord. The world hates you. Know that it has hated me before it hated you. So we can't expect the world to like what we're doing, nor can that be our goal. Next, we'll jump to the Holy Spirit again. Because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. It is pretty depressing to hear that the world's gonna hate you, that you're going to have a hard time. First of all, you're hearing the master's leaving. Then you're hearing that, well, he's gonna come back and take care of you some point, but he's still leaving you. Can't quite deal with that. And then he says, well, I'm leaving you, but I'm going to send someone else in my place. Well, okay, but I don't know who that is really, so I'm not really warmed up to that yet. And then, by the way, because of all of this, the world's going to hate you. So let's just keep digging this hole deeper. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him. And when he comes, he will do three things. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. 
So obviously Jesus is being replaced by the helper. How is that better? Well, it's more encompassing. Jesus came as a man, so he could only talk to X number of people in a day. The Holy Spirit comes to all people. So when you talk about, I don't know, how many billions of people are walking on our planet today? A lot of people, too many for one person to talk to. Although now we have some technology that might reach a third of them or something. I don't know. How many people read Facebook or do, do that stuff? I don't know. Anyway, not the point. In those days, that wasn't around. So the Holy Spirit can actually convict the world concerning sin because they do not believe in him, concerning righteousness because I, Jesus, go to the Father and you will see me no more. He goes to the Father, basically with his blood to pay for the sins of the world. And, and concerning judgment, because the ruler of the world is judged. The ruler of the world. On the second day, somewhere, Jesus went into Hades, went into hell, and condemned Satan and judgment was pronounced and he is already condemned. So Satan is out of, the, is condemned. And he goes on to say, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. They can't even, they really can't bear what they've already heard. But he can't, he can't tell them more at this point. But when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Therefore, all the, everything the Father has goes to Jesus, and he gives it all to you. So you have all the things the Father has. That's, I, my mind can't swallow that one. That's like way too big. But that's what he intends. It's just, uh, it's just, an, it's just too much, too much. Your sorrow will turn into joy. He talks about his return and describes it as a woman giving birth. She has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. I guess that I'm, I, the women have to attest to that one for me. <laughs> Nevertheless, it represents a picture that there's going to be great travail and great difficulty, but on the other side of it, when it's all over, it's going to be amazing. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing from me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. And when you will be scattered each to your own home, and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace in the world. You will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. 
So he's prepared them as best he could for what's to come tomorrow. And he tried one more time to teach them again what he probably has told teach them before, but pulled it all together here. It's a fantastic section of the Bible for us to see what Jesus expresses as the most important points, at least that's how I interpret it, that he wants his disciples to hear again or to hear for the first time if they didn't hear it the first time. But it's a great summary of, of our faith and what Jesus has done for us and what God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit are doing for us and how we are to respond and what's coming our way in light of what they're doing for us and how we are to respond to that and who's there to help us through it. It's all here. And even though I'm taking a little long, but nevertheless, I haven't gotten any real depth. I want you to know this section is worth your time. <laughs> Let's put it that way. If you, know, if you want to know the Father, be in the Word. And this is a wonderful section of the Word for believers, for disciples of God, which is how I see most of you. And uh, no, lost, no lost time spent here. Finally, we have chapter 17, where Jesus prays. And he prays for his disciples. He pray, well, first he prays for his glorification. He prays to God for what God has done for him and what he's done for God, because Jesus is God. Then he prays for his disciples. And then he prays and then he prays that his disciples be protected. And then he prays for those who will believe. That's you. So, you know, he prays for us. Because he knows we're coming. And we're still coming. So let me just touch on this a little bit. And then, then I'll free you up to your summer days. <laughs> Jesus first prays for his glorification. And he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. This is eternal life, that they know you. Stop there a second. This is eternal life, that they know you. Eternal life is based on relationship. It is not a performance list of things you need to have done. You have, they know you. And this is the kind of know uh, it's the same word used, Adam knew Eve in the Garden of Eden. It's an intimate, loving relationship that he's looking for. It's not, oh yeah, I know how to spell G-O-D. It's more than that. It's to know God. And something we aspire should aspire to. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on earth, have accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You know, he's returning back to that state with God before even creation. Then he prays for his disciples. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, they are yours. 
He's praying specifically for the disciples. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Amen? Then he prays for their protection, because he knows they're coming into the world that hates them. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them safe from the evil one. And that's where we are. We are in the world. We're not taken out of the world yet. We need to pray to be kept safe from the evil one. Part of the Lord's Prayer, by the way. Lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. Then Jesus prays for his disciples may be sanctified, sanctifying them in the truth. Your word is the truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I constantly consecrate myself and they may also be sanctified in truth thank you lord and then jesus prays for us and this is an interesting prayer still waiting to be fulfilled even <laughs> and it goes like this i do not ask for these only these being the the disciples in front of them but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one just as you. Father, you are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, you in me, and they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. It's a prayer of unity. It's a prayer saying that all of us, quote, disciples, may be one. And we've had a hard time with that. You know, we don't really have one church. We are big on not having one. So it's one of our, our difficulties, part of our fallen nature maybe, uh, always looking for ways to disagree instead of agree. Someday we will all be one. Jesus prays that all believers may be perfected so as to see Jesus' glory. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. That's you. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So know that individually we need to love. Individually we need to be following the instructions he gave his disciples way back at the beginning of this talk. <laughs> you know, it's quite a template for our understanding of what he has in mind for us and how we are to react and how we are to treat other people, how we are to be servants, meeting the needs of all those around us, how we are to show his love, 
and that's show the love for Jesus. And he shows, when we do that, we sh he shows his love in us. And we know the Holy Spirit is in us. And we know God and Jesus, by the way, also make a home in us. And it's just a picture that is beyond understanding. All I can do is say the words and let the Holy Spirit work on your hearts because the word not, does not come back void. And I'm pretty much saying almost all the word for this message. <laughs> but the word is so good that I really can't improve on it. I think it just is worthy of repeating the word over and over again because it's so powerful and it's so... It's such a uh, completion. It marks the end of his discipleship with his disciples. And it marks the beginning of their life without him and the Holy Spirit and the beginning of the church. And on it goes, and we're part of that. So we're all part of that great expansion, that great multiplication of 20-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold moving out into the world. And there's still more to go. So there you have it. And let me just say a final prayer, and then I'll leave you. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for what you have done, for teaching your disciples of the past and of the present and in the future, Lord, especially the young people upstairs. Father, continue to teach all of us your ways, the ways to to understand the love that you have for us, to be able to respond to that love in a loving way, Father, to treat each other in love. Father, thank you for your help. We need it. Thank you for your Holy Spirit in our heart to guide us. We praise you and thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.